Caitlin started a business connecting immigrants to legal aid. At FPF, she made a metric that gave out privacy policy grades. After teaching, Caitlin went to law school at Notre Dame. Once you hear her story, you won't forget her name. So on today's podcast, I am happy to introduce Caitlin Ringrose, who is a data governance and security senior analyst at Google. Uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me, Noah. This is going to be great. Okay. So we will start from the beginning. Um, growing up, what kinds of things, you know, what, what did you think about being as a kid? Um, and, you know, was data privacy on your mind uh, from day one? So I have to say, when I was growing up, I had no lawyer role models. I didn't know a single attorney. Um, I actually didn't know very many people who went to college in general. I'm from a really small town in Northern California um, that is pretty hit by the opioid epidemic, um, to be honest, and pretty well characterized by uh, its poverty. So when I grew up, um, I, I was really poor. I was the kid who other kids gave clothing to. I had really no career aspirations. At one point, I really wanted to be a long haul truck driver. Um, but then I started alone all the time and there are high rates of, of violence against women alone on the road. Um, so I didn't really have those kinds of career options available to me. Um, my mom was a, a single mom. We lived in a trailer. We were homeless at, at different points of our lives. Um, so, so I just never saw that as an option. Um, and then when I went to high school, I thought, gosh, you know, do, doing something where I was able to give back to others sounded really interesting. I loved school. I wanted to be a doctor at that point. Um, and then I, I think I kind of realized soon after that to be a doctor, you had to be good at math and be good at chemistry. So I gave up on that, um, became second best thing, which was a lawyer. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, how, how my career path started. Wow, fascinating. Um, very interesting background. So then did you go straight from high school to, uh, to UC Davis? Is that right? And talk a little bit about, um, I guess, you know, also what were some of your first jobs? Did you have uh, a job in, in high school? So I will say my, my town was so small that there weren't really even that many jobs to be had. My town was population 300 and my high school had about maybe 56 kids in my graduating class. So kids came from all over just to go to high school um, because it were a huge county with, with very few schools. So there weren't jobs to be had. I'm sure if there were, I would have been working. Um, but what I ended up doing was, was finishing high school or finishing my required classes pretty early, started taking at the time, which were really early online course, courses, right? There wasn't such a thing as like, going to university online, um, but I could take a few local community college classes on the internet. So I did that um, until I was 18. And at that point I had earned my AA. And then, yeah, I went I went to Davis, um, but definitely recommend for students out there looking at options to pursue a community college because those classes are affordable, available to you. And they're also taught by like fantastic instructors who care about their community, Oftentimes they're they're you know retired from from big universities. They have all these wonderful connections. 
to the extent you can, especially if you're in California, um, take advantage of community college. Excellent point. You know, I'm curious about growing up, um, being homeless at times, you know, how that shaped your work now. Has that affected at all, uh, you know, your day-to-day work at Google or uh, when you're at the Future of Privacy Forum? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's important to recognize privacy as a, a right, a human right, a civil right. However, you look at privacy, we as humans deserve it. It's not a luxury. It's not something you should or, or can buy. And so from my perspective, I think that oftentimes we kind of lose that, right? When you're thinking about incentivizing privacy in some ways, right? Making a browser that's kind of expensive, but hey, people who can afford it should, that sort of thing, just it doesn't fly um, in the privacy space. And so I often do think about folks who aren't able to afford things like monthly subscription services or who maybe don't have a voice in the privacy realm today and who should. Um, So yeah, I I think it does impact me, but I also think it kind of helps me distance myself a little bit from work too, because I think these problems are really big, they're really important. Um, But then at the end of the day, if I can't explain them to a family member or to a friend, um, then I'm not doing my job very well. Great point. Um, Okay, so let's move to your time in college. Talk a little bit about that experience, you know, what you majored in, what sort of uh, involvement you had there, any any jobs, and uh, just overall your overall uh, college experience. Yeah, um, I think college is a time of learning, a time of exploration. I, like I said, started off wanting to be a doctor. Um, so I took a bunch of random classes in that regard and ended up majoring in English and anthropology. Um, and so it was a, a bit of a winding path, a bit of a meandering one, but lots of college credits accumulated until I was kind of, you know, I had to graduate. Um, and I, I will say it was an interesting experience for me as a first generation college student. I was one of, I think, three people in my high school class to go to college. I felt like UC Davis, like Davis, what a big city, even though looking back, it's so small and so rural. Um, but at the time, I just thought it was like the biggest place in the world and kind of frankly terrifying. Um, but but I had a good time in college. I think I learned more about myself. I started volunteering and working a lot more with my community, the LGBTQ community. I also did work in college. I was an English instructor for individuals for whom English is a second language. And there I was kind of able to, you know, continue honestly experiencing poverty. Um, I still use the food bank, both the community one and the campus one. And I think oftentimes we kind of forget about the college students who actually are, you know, not living off ramen because it tastes good, but living off ramen because it's what they can afford. Um, so that's kind of where I was in college, right? It was, I was pretty poor. I was struggling with understanding what it was like to, to go to university as a first generation student. Um, I kind of found a pocket of friends, many of whom were, were queer and who were first gen. And that's kind of how I kicked off my adulthood. Interesting. So following uh, your, your college at UC Davis, then you became a, uh, a teacher in Washington. 
talk a little bit about how you ended up there and what sorts of things um, you did teaching. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I've always loved Seattle. I'm like obsessed with Seattle. I think I watched too much Great Anatomy probably, but um, I knew it was a place I wanted to be. I think it's beautiful and it's a gorgeous city. It's near the ocean. Um, there's hiking, just anything and everything. Uh, and I knew too, that there were a lot of jobs for folks like me with this experience teaching. So when I went to Seattle at the time, it was right after Obama had issued basically an order to states kind of saying, if you are able, try to accommodate as many unaccompanied minors as you can. And so unaccompanied minors are individuals generally, in my case, were refugees and immigrants from inhospitable countries that were in the United States without a legal guardian or a parent. So they were living in foster care. My school district at the time accepted about 8,000 new students, which was a huge rush of students and they needed instructors. Um, so when I moved to Washington, I started teaching both at public schools and also kind of on the side at private schools and did private tutoring. I was basically just working from 7 a.m. To, to 10 p.m. every day, working with my students, uh, working with the organizations that supported them, supporting their foster parents, and then ensuring also um, part of coming to a new country is navigating the legal system. So ensuring that they were able to get the resources that they needed. Around that time is when I started really noticing that my students were struggling with being able to reach out to an attorney or being able to get legal representation. If they were, say, like studying for citizenship tests, they would have to share documents with one another. Um, they were checking out books from the library. It was a really confusing process. To speak to their attorney, a lot of times my students would need to do things like ride, like take an afternoon off of school for one, ride their bike to their attorney's office, wait quite a bit for their attorney to be able to make the time to speak with them and then hear a bunch of like legal jargon that was pretty confusing. Um, so it was a difficult process to navigate. It also wasn't entirely my role to help them navigate it. They didn't have that many other folks in their lives or other adults in their lives who had the time or the capacity to help. So I saw that there was a, a huge need there. And that's when I decided, well, number one, I loved my job. Um, I was getting really burned out because I think there is an element of that kind of emotional um, fatigue there when you're supporting so many individuals in your community. Um, and I, so I decided to go to law school and I thought, well, you know, there has to be a solution here. There has to be some sort of pragmatic fix to, to this problem. Well, that's fascinating. So, um, you ended up going to law school after that and talk about um, you know, how you ended up at, at Notre Dame pretty much uh, quite, a, quite a bit farther away from, from the, uh, the West Coast. Um, so just talk about that experience, how you ended up there and, and what sorts of things um, you started doing in law school. Yeah, um, Notre Dame is in Indiana, far from the West Coast. Um, and like I said, I, you know, first generation student, I don't know. Well, I, at the time I didn't know any lawyers. Now it feels like, you know, a lot of my friends are attorneys, but at the time I didn't know any lawyers. I had no idea what look, looking at law schools was like, what applying to law schools is like. 
now I know, okay, if you're taking the LSAT, study for it, you know, be rigorous. Every point you get is thousands of scholarship dollars. I know all of this now, but at the time I was like, the LSAT is just, you just take it and then you get what you get and you go to whatever school you go to. Um, so I was working quite a bit. I was trying to travel. I was also just scraping together um, money and making sure I could support myself. I was pretty young. And so when I, when I took the LSAT, I took the last iteration. Again, really had no idea what I was doing. Like it was mostly like operating off of internet forums and the advice of strangers. Uh, and so I, I took the LSAT, I submitted a few applications. Applications were really expensive. I think they were like 50 or $80. I could only get so many fee waivers. So I only applied to like a handful of schools. Again, I did everything wrong. Like this is going against the advice I would give to my younger self. And it's advice I've heard now thousands of times, right? Number one, you should probably study and spend some time investing in that. Number two, like apply broadly and kind of wage uh, offers against one another. But I just just kind of applied to, to a few places that I thought sounded nice. And Notre Dame has this mission statement about being a different kind of lawyer. And it is honestly a beautiful school. They were the only school who flew me out to like look at the campus. And I was like, wow, it's a beautiful campus. Never been to Indiana before. You know, sounds great. I knew at the time that they were starting things like an LGBT law forum, which I was really interested in. I'm not a religious person. I had no idea that the university was so staunchly Catholic, um, but I had no strong feelings about that either way either. So when I wound up at Notre Dame, I was pretty much, uh, you know, unaware and naive of what going to law school actually looks like. So talk about that a little bit uh, once you got there and, you know, was there sort of a rude awakening or, or what did you experience uh, going to going to law school? I think it is a rude awakening, right? You're surrounded by students who are like, I know what job I'm going to have because my dad is partner at, at this place. Or I, you know, what's your LSAT score? Or, you know, you sit in classes with people that are like all operating on their brand new computers when you're taking like notes in your notepad. And I was living in basically like a teardown house. I had a house that was like no power when I got there. So I was going to law school and just feeling like I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand any of these people's very confusing lingo. Um, and also, you know, law school is at least the first semester, it feels really intangible when you've been working. Um, and you are very goal oriented, law school can feel very strange um, because you have like a handful of tests at the end of a semester and just sitting down and studying to me felt really foreign. Um, I wasn't you know, writing papers, I wasn't creating tangible materials to give to someone. Um, I was supposed to just be spending all these like luxurious hours like curled over a book, which I wasn't used to. Um, so law school was really strange for me. And I think it, it took me a long time to get acclimated. And I think like by the end, by graduating, I had kind of gotten acclimated. Um, but what really helped me actually was right away almost, I wanted, I knew I wanted to start this platform connecting juvenile immigrants with pro bono legal aid. And so I 
kicked off the idea with a couple friends and we were like, let's do this as a business. The university supports businesses. The law school has a bunch of clinics that help um, you know, create and spawn off business. So when we kicked it off, we had quite a bit of, of support um, from other students, from business students to computer science students. We started building it on our own. And it was really, really hard to kick off. We had to pursue capital, um, which, I mean, at the time, only 17 cents of every venture capital dollar was given to, to women founders, right? Everything else is basically a white man's world and it still is. So it's difficult to create something that is sustainable and be able to explain its sustainability, but also not be seen as like a woman in the space that is just creating something for social good. And we purposefully made it so our business wasn't a 501c3. It was, um, it was not a nonprofit. It was intended to make profit because firms really do struggle um, with getting pro bono opportunities, making sure those are marketed correctly, and then also just wasting a lot of their time going back and forth, you know, flying people uh, to different locations. Our idea was basically like, do all that on a platform uh, with a child and do that now when there is massive need. Um, because at the moment we were seeing huge push from the Trump administration against uh, unaccompanied minors in particular. So this, I was really interested in this. My friends were all wanting to be immigration lawyers. And this is kind of what we did nonstop. I will say like this, my biggest memories from law school, most of my time was taken up by my business, which was called Empower Us. And that's also when I started getting interested in privacy because I was like, wow, immigration, so interesting, but I could never do this. It's really hard. And what I really liked was the fact that we had an online platform and we had a lot of data. We had information. It is really vulnerable, right? When you're connecting children and lawyers, those are two populations where children's data is vulnerable, particularly the data of children that are um, unaccompanied, that have you know, certain special needs for their information to stay private, especially against actors like the US government who might wanna know their location, their age, all sorts of things about them. And you also have lawyers who have professional obligations to keep their communications confidential. Um, so there was a lot of movement around the sensitivity of the data and how we could keep it secure. So that's what got me interested in privacy and, and security writ large. So I'm curious about, you know, the current status of uh, your business. I guess talk a little bit about how it's gone so far and, um, you know, is it still in existence? Yeah. So I will say we had a major rush just because of the administration. We were, you know, starting kicking off operating in um, and then because of that, we had like a solid four years of like hard labor and hard work. And at the time we were, you know, named Inc. Magazine, like top eight student tech startups in the nation. We were at South by Southwest, we were presenting everywhere. Um, and then kind of with that came this recognition, like, you know, we, we understood that the business model for this was almost dependent on the, the need. And we were understanding of that, I think, all of us wanted to make sure that we were solving for the need. 
Um, and that's when we were thinking, you know, okay, well, can we make this open source? Can we make it so that the learnings from our business are available to everyone? And that's what we started transitioning to doing. Um, I did, I did duck out of the business. My co-founder, Veronica, who's a genius, took over uh, all the day-to-day operations. And at the moment, we're you know making everything open source and taking away from it as a business and pushing it more towards a platform. Um, we've also been able to make sure that Notre Dame students who want to are able to do things like visit the border and give free legal advice um, to, to children and young adults there. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're taking away all the business aspects and mostly just moving it into streamlining the process of what it kind of was initially intended to be, which is like giving as much help as is needed. Um, and I won't say that there's less help needed today, but it, there is at least a little bit uh, less of that push from the administration that we were kind of operating under. Oh, important work. Um, so talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your internships or externships during uh, law school. I see that you worked at the Department of Justice. What sorts of things did you do there? And um, were you already focusing, you know, on privacy when you uh, were working there? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I knew I wanted to do privacy and security just from my experiences with the business. So my first summer, actually, first summers are always just like random. Do whatever you want during your first summer. <laughs> that's what I tell people. Um, my first summer, I went to Hawaii and was a clerk for a justice, a state Supreme Court justice in Hawaii, which is great fun. It was amazing. The justice was amazing. Fourth Amendment issues under him. Um, and I love, you know, I love privacy. We're all Fourth Amendment geeks. So I had a great time. My second summer, I went to Washington State Attorney General's office, where I worked doing um, consumer protection, which includes, of course, privacy, worked with um, the AG's office to develop policies for Washington State Patrol um, around things like facial recognition technology. So looking at impacts of emerging tech. And I also looked at things like the privacy of genetic information. Um, so whether Washington state could or should retrieve genetic data in certain circumstances, right? Um, that sort of work, which is of course, super impactful and important. Um, and so after that, I started writing more and learning more about facial rec and genetic privacy. When I came, I knew I wanted to go to DC and like, oh, you know, in my dream, <laughs> I, I live in DC. And I'm an, an East Coast lawyer. So I knew I wanted to do that. I came to DC. Notre Dame has a DC program. And immediately upon coming here, the government shut down. It was one of like you know, the administration's many, many shutdowns. And so I had no place to be. And I had been writing a lot on privacy. I reached out to Center for Democracy and Technology here, which is a, a nonprofit, and asked if I could just work with them while the government shutdown was happening. And they said yes. So I worked at CDT um, doing the same sorts of things, right? Writing about genetic privacy, um, working on these kind of discrete issue areas while I was waiting for the DOJ to open. When the DOJ did open, I kind of rolled my desk over, um, and no pun intended, but it really is like one block away. Um, I rolled my chair over there to my new desk and I started working at CFIPS, which is Computer Crimes and Intellectual Property Division of the DOJ that deals with any crimes that happen over the wires, right? So that is like 
um, the agency that was responsible for the takedown of Kickass Torrance or Silk Road. Um, so anything from complex, like complex criminal litigation over the web to just general IP violations. That was a really interesting time. It was, you know, exactly almost when Carpenter was decided and we started having this rash of cases about consumer information and what you do with consumer information. So um, I loved working at the DOJ. I think I still have friends in CSIPS. I think, you know, that kind of experience is fantastic for law students. And that's kind of how I ended my law school career. I was still in DC, I was still working at CSIPS and I graduated and I flew back for graduation. Okay, so following law school, um, you started at Google as a policy fellow. So talk a little bit about that experience and uh, what, you, what you did at Google uh, following law school. Yeah, so at the time, um, Google was opening its fellowship applications to business students, to law students, um, to graduates. And it was very much an opportunity to live and work in DC both with Google, but also in conjunction with specific tech policy orgs. Um, so those organizations vary and are really wide ranging. Um, so I was able to interview and look at different policy opportunities pretty much right um, as I was graduating. And then I started working with Google in conjunction with the American Library Association immediately upon after graduating. And there I was looking into the privacy and confidentiality rights of formerly and currently incarcerated library patrons when they use tech. Um, so it was thinking about things like how do formerly incarcerated library patrons find jobs, right? I spoke to one man who um, relied on public libraries in, in an incredible way um, throughout his eight year long period of incarceration. So he would do things like read books to his daughter and send his daughter recordings of him reading. When he got out of prison, he used his public library to search Craigslist and to find a job. He used his public library to learn how to code. And now he works for another large tech company. And I think, you know, typically in tech policy land, we're not thinking about you know, goodness, how does this impact people who have experienced incarceration or how does this impact people in prisons or jails today? But we should, we should think about that a lot more. And it was really, really helpful to kind of be at that intersection early on and get that experience. So I recommend not just the Google Fellowship. There are a few more like it now. They're pretty unique, but I do recommend taking that summer um, or however much time you can spare working on an issue that's critical, near and dear to you, um, that you're interested in, and also one that needs attention like that, um, pretty pretty dire attention that you can kind of carry forward throughout your career. So it was a good opportunity for me. I loved it. I loved working with Google. I loved working um, with the Library Association here in DC. And that's also kind of the end of that is, is when I transitioned to Future Privacy Forum. Now, you mentioned that uh at the as a google policy fellow there were a variety of different people there from different backgrounds of lawyers and um phds etc you know can you talk about kind of that experience working uh with with different types of people with different backgrounds and 
how much interaction did you have with them and uh, what sorts of, you know, collaborative work did you do? Yeah, I've had a very unique career in that I am constantly surrounded by technologists, by computer scientists, by MBA graduates, uh, communications graduates, folks who, who didn't go to college or didn't achieve a higher degree, anyone and everyone from all walks of life and um, different pools of experience, right? Different lived experiences. And I think that's incredibly valuable. There's almost nothing more helpful um, when you're just going to law school and working on a team with all lawyers, you can get really bad tunnel vision pretty quickly. And that's something that's really positive about DC and tech policy in general is that you're always working with people that are looking at issues from all different perspectives. And that just makes your team so much better, so much more able to address issues as they arise. And it's, it's honestly just critical. Um, so I think that is maybe a unique aspect of tech policy, but it's also something that lawyers in general should be working more toward um, is taking themselves out of silos and putting themselves on diverse teams. Great advice. So following your work at Google, uh, you started at the Future Privacy Forum. So talk a little bit about that transition and you know your, uh, your work there. Yeah, um, well, this is a <laughs> privacy podcast, so hopefully people know what's up. But I had been really steeped in Fourth Amendment and government access work uh, up until that point, right? I was looking quite seriously at things like genetic privacy and law enforcement access. I was working on post-carpenter issues. I was thinking about things like the Cloud Act and um, what other governments around the world are doing with consumer data. And I hadn't really thought about consumer data as in what are these big companies doing? What are small companies doing? What are, what are companies in general here in the US and globally doing with your data? I was quite focused um, on law enforcement and police. So when I went to Future of Privacy Forum, which is more concerned with consumer privacy writ large, I did have to shift my focus quite a bit. Uh, and part of that meant that I had been working on genetic privacy in the law enforcement realm, thinking about questions like, wow, law enforcement have this database, CODIS, of all these genetic profiles or partial profiles. What other databases are they using? What other protections are in place? I had to start thinking about what are the other databases that aren't law enforcement health, right? And that's why I started working on the health and genetics team at Future Privacy Forum. And I was also able to pursue uh, my interest in legislation by working on the state and federal legislation team, which tracks all privacy laws and bills writ large. So if something is written by industry, if something is written by an advocacy group, the draft bill being circulated here in DC, we would look at it and analyze it and compare it, right? Um, and do comparative analysis against something like the GDPR. Um, or you know other models internationally. So I got to do a lot of really great work there. I loved working at FPF. It was a very fast moving environment. I always recommend fellowships to students that are getting into privacy, that are interested in privacy. Privacy is a pretty new field, right? The GDPR is only a couple years old now. Um, it's still a toddler. <laughs> the you know California law, the CCPA, the CPRA, those are brand new 
we're still seeing things like Virginia kind of pop up. Now we're looking at maybe Colorado. These are all brand new things. Um, so there aren't those kinds of institutional roles open to students right after they graduate, right? You're not just gonna be able to find a million firms that have entry level privacy positions open. Uh, there has to be an opening where you can learn from folks that have been in the field for a while, but you know those those roles maybe are, are few and far between. And fellowships are the perfect place for that, where you can kind of learn for a year or two and really absorb as much as possible. But you're also writing and producing work. So that's what I did throughout my fellowship. I worked on the same issues I cared about in law school, and I was really lucky because I felt like. FPF was very supportive. I really did feel like what I was interested in was what I was doing every day. I was like doing my hobby for a job. That's great. Um, now you were a diversity fellow there. I'm curious whether, you know, what what role that uh, like diversity played in your work at Future Privacy Forum? Yeah, for sure. Um, so first off, I will say um, that DC tech policy can be really, monolithic in a way, right? A lot of folks will write policy documents and they'll be like, well, I can write this because I'm a, I'm a good person or, you know, I, I don't know enough about this issue, but I care about it. And I think something we miss a lot is having the voice of experts who have those lived experiences weigh in um, and be able to say like, no, this applies to me. If you're changing a law or if you're making some sort of policy recommendation or setting some sort of safeguard and it impacts me and my rights, then I need to be able to give my opinion or um, you know, give at least some informed expertise on that particular document or law. And so it's important that we include communities writ large. So actually at Google, I was able to learn a lot from the folks at the University of Washington Diverse Voices Lab who teach a methodology about including those with lived experiences in your policy documents and making sure that you're not moving forward without basically swaths of your population. So it's something that's really important to me. It's something I brought to FPF. And then also through that, I was able to support um, a lot of ongoing and new efforts here in DC to ensure more diversity and privacy in cyber writ large. So part of that is I help host things like Share the Mic in Cyber, which is an initiative to highlight the voices and experiences of black men and women in cyber. I'm also on the board of women in security and privacy here in DC, where we you know, do things like host a job board um, that, and also have a, a membership group of women who are in this field who are looking for support or mentorship. That's great. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit more about uh, Share the Mic in Cyber and um, the women in, in cyber and uh, just some of the different initiatives that uh, you've done with, with both of those groups? Yeah, of course. So first off, it is important to note that women in tech only make up about 25% of the total population of folks in tech. So it's pretty small, only a quarter of us are women. And then in cyber, it's even worse, about 17% of folks in cyber are women. And the pay also has incredible disparities in cyber. 
um, with women making less than their male counterparts and women of color making far less than that. So when we're looking at places where gaps need to be filled in the US workforce, cyber is of course one of those. And also we have just a general cyber gap in this country. Um, we're the US as a nation, not just in the private sector needs to hire about 300,000 plus roles in cyber and they should be filling those roles with the people uh, who look like the makeup of our nation. And that's incredibly important because a, a diverse cyber force means a more secure nation, right? Like I said, everyone has diverse perspectives on how they look at issues. If you all come from the same background, then you're more likely to create just kind of one, one eye uh, towards an issue or one solution when really you need something that's really multifaceted. Um, so that particular campaign runs um, it's been twice a year so far, um, but we might pick that up. It really depends. This past March, we just finished a campaign that was about highlighting and celebrating Black women in cyber for Women's History Month. And as part of that, we're able to do things like create a scholarship fund for practitioners and students in cyber. And we're also able to just create those communities where we can share job postings, we can discuss different certifications and share expertise. That's great. Um, so let's move on to your current role here at, uh, at Google. So talk a little bit about how you ended up transitioning from uh, the Future Privacy Forum to Google. And I know you're just in your first few weeks uh, at Google, but uh, you know, talk about that experience so far. Yeah, so I think job hunting is number one, extremely stressful. Um, so I, I'm still a little shocked because of the process. But at the same time, everyone at Future Privacy Forum was super um, thoughtful and accommodating when I was on my job hunt and was really able to kind of put me in touch with, with folks that they knew and people that they thought I should talk to. And so that was really helpful. So I think surrounding myself by um, surround myself with individuals who are able to support and, and helpful in that way was a great um, step. And that's why I think fellowships are so important in the privacy space. So that helped set me up for a, a lot of meetings, a lot of interviews. I will say I interviewed like pretty widely across a lot of positions in industry and government and at firms. And I, I can't bash firms. I've never worked at a firm. But every time I spoke to someone at a firm, it kind of felt like I was speaking through like some sort of barrier, right? Where I would be like, what do you actually do during the day? And they would say things like, I consult with clients. And I never knew what that meant. Um, I don't have like a traditional background in the law. I didn't know any lawyers growing up. All of my friends who are lawyers do like these, you know, policy jobs or like, I don't know, I have random friends in bankruptcy, but I don't have, you know, insight into what everyone is doing on the law firm side in terms of privacy. So I always kind of go into those conversations with some degree of um, skepticism, <laughs> not understanding entirely. Um, and then always kind of thinking like, maybe they're doing the same thing I'm doing, but they just couch it with different language. Um, so, so those interviews were helpful and those, those people were really helpful, but then ultimately I kind of thought, well, I think I'm coming to the end of my rope where I'm starting to think firms are not 
really so much for me, at least in this point of my career. And the thing I loved about running my own company and that I still love about working for a company is knowing your goals right off the bat, right? I know what I need to do. I know um, the, the types of things I'm moving forward on. When I owned my company, it was very clear what my metrics were. And so working for a company is pretty similar to that. Um, when you're working for a firm, you have all sorts of different clients and you're working on all sorts of different projects and you don't always know or have clarity into their end goals. Um, but working for Google, I do feel like I have that sort of um, push to where I'm pretty clear on um, what my job is and what my goals are. And that's actually very, very helpful for me. Um, so that's what attracted me to a role in a company. And there is a bifurcation in privacy between like in-house and policy. And Google kind of seems to blur that quite a bit um, where all the teams are really cross collaborative. We work in the same office. And I think that that's really helpful too because I am a lawyer. I don't think of myself as like, you know, JD preferred or whatever folks say. I'm barred and I went to law school and I think distinctions between lawyers and non-lawyers is really weird. Um, and, and so it's helpful for me to surround myself by folks from all different walks of life and then also know that I can apply like my expertise in privacy law to what I do today. And what I do today is very much what I've always been interested in, which is law enforcement and government access. Of course, I do have more of a global lens now than I ever have because we do have things like you know, we just had Trends 2 decided that was a global decision with far reaching impacts. So my role is a lot more um, global than I'm sure this, this role historically has been. Well, so looking forward, um, where do you see yourself, Caitlin? You know, uh, what kind of career uh, aspirations do you have uh, in the future? That's hard. Um, it's really rough. I don't always, you know, say like, oh, in five years, I want to be doing this particular thing. Um, or I want to have this particular role, right? I just want to be doing what I'm interested in. Um, and if I can continue researching and learning and diving deeper into this like nitty gritty world that I think is super fascinating, then I will be super happy. Um, and that's part of why I write and part of why I do what I do is because I think this is very, very, very interesting work. I don't, I don't like it when people say things like, I work to live, right? <laughs> like, no, that's kind of terrible. You're spending so many hours of your life at work. You might as well really enjoy it. Um, and so I feel very, very lucky, um, that I'm in a space where, you know, you go through all of this, these years of, of school and you understand um, what you're interested in. I've had the luxury of being able to spend all that time finding out what I'm interested in. And now I found it. So I just want to continue on that path. Great. So moving to my next, my, uh, my last question, um, for a listener that's thinking about, you know, how they can become the next Caitlin Ringrose, what uh, type of advice or steps that you've taken along the way that you know you felt that have really propelled you uh, to to get to where you are. That's hard. I don't know if you're gonna. I, you know, you're gonna be hard pressed to find people who want to be the next me. But I do 
think that it is important to kind of follow your gut, find out what you're interested in. Don't look around and look at other people's careers too much, right? Um, that can be helpful to an extent while you're still learning the lay of the land, but you are you, you are your own unique person with your own interests and expertise. And I would also say two bits of advice. The first thing is don't count yourself out. I meet so many women and particularly women of color who say things like, I'm not an expert. I don't know enough to speak on that. And I just think that's not true. If you deeply care about something, if you research it and you watch things about it and you consume it, then you are an expert. You have a voice, you have things to say and you should say them. A lot of the people I follow on Twitter and I think are really cool and smart are students. Um, and so, you know, share that, share your expertise and your interests. I think that you'll never go wrong doing that. And then the next piece of advice was from my former boss, Jules Polineski, who just told me, you know, when you're, when you're still learning, just try to find the room where the experts are, which is number one, very, very hard. And then number two, join the room. You don't have to, you don't have to be in the room to say anything, but just if you're in the room, you're going to be able to, to learn and grow. Um, and so it, it is very, very hard to find where those conversations are happening. But I think you, when you know, you know. Um, and so that's what I do, right? I All day today, I was in meetings where I was like, wow, I don't know as much about this as everyone else, but that's where I want to be, right? Um, and so it's always good to be the house on the block that builds a lot of equity because it's not the best looking one. But one day it, it could be. <laughs> Okay, with that, thank you so much, Caitlin, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.